The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 18th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about the field for this year's NCAA tournament and Zion Williamson's pretty damn impressive return to the floor for your Duke Blue Devils. We'll also discuss Operation Varsity Blues, the amazing college admission scandal named after a movie that I have never seen. And we will assess the Giants' move to trade Odell Beckham Jr. to the Browns, the Steelers dealing Antonio Brown to the Raiders, and the hot new trend of dead money in the NFL. Here with me in our Washington, D.C. studio is my co-host, Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak in a few seconds of panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. $20 million of dead money for Stefan Fatsis. $20 million of dead money lying around? The money. The dead presidents for, for Stefan Fatsis. It's, it's killing us. It's killing the franchise. Uh, joining us from New York this week, it's our colleague Ben Mathis Lilly, whose parents paid $500,000 for him to be on the show today. Uh, <laughs> hello, Ben. Hey guys, uh, are you saying you're, you're questioning my uh, my background in squash and crew? <laughs> Look, your your parent, you know, they sent in a photo of you with a microphone, uh, <laughs> just you know, showing your qualifications to to speak uh, on a recording. Except the microphone was like twenty feet over your head. It seemed like very badly photoshopped. Yeah, but but Ben's credentials, he was captain of the travel podcast club at his elite. Michigan High School, from what I understand. That's right. right. Eminently qualified. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday night, the NCAA Selection Committee released the names and seeds for the 68 teams in this year's men's basketball tournament, a process that CBS should be commended for handling less annoyingly than in years past. So way to go, CBS. Duke is the tournament's top overall seed, and we'll get to them in a bit. Well, Gonzaga and two other ACC teams, Virginia and North Carolina, are your other three number one seeds. At the other end of the pool are Belmont plus Temple, St. John's, and Arizona State. They're the participants in this year's play-in games on Tuesday and Wednesday. While the middling major conference teams like North Carolina State, Clemson, Indiana, and TCU all got left out. Uh, My spiel on this has always been and continues to be that if the idea is to include the best teams in the tournament, it makes sense to include the likes of Belmont, which has done really well against a weaker schedule, because we don't know yet if they're one of the best teams in the country, and the tournament is a good way to find out. Whereas we already know what we have in, for instance, North Carolina State, which went 1-8 against the teams in its conference, the ACC, that made the tournament field. Uh, Stefan, there is a big change in how the NCAA evaluates teams. They went from the RPI to the net, which I talked a little bit about last week. Um, It seems like based on these selections, they didn't necessarily stick to going with the net because Clemson and NC State both have really good 
rankings 33 and 35, while Belmont, Temple, Arizona, and St. John's all are worse. So do we have a sense of what the criteria were? Um, I think what we have a sense of is that they didn't adhere strictly, as you said, to the net. But what they did do is look at how those teams with lower net ratings did against what were they calling them? Quad one wins. How many quad one wins wins against teams in the top quartile of Division one basketball? Um, And that seems like a reasonable criterion to me. I mean, it seems like you want some flexibility. You don't want it to just be by the ranking numbers. It gives them some uh, um, leeway to let in a Belmont, a Belmont deserve to be in, but to let in teams that might be lower in one rating than another, but did show that they have the ability to beat better teams, which is what you want in the tournament. You want teams that have the ability to beat better teams because most of these at-large teams are going to be seated in the bottom half of the bracket. Um, whether it was a big, whether it was a sea change, it certainly didn't seem like that. There were seven non-power conference at-large bids this year. That wasn't an outrageous number. There were 10 in 2014. So maybe there was some change in the metrics and the conversation in the room of the seating committee. But overall, I don't didn't seem like a gigantic switch to me. There is like always this conversation, Ben, about how it's more kind of morally correct to let in the smaller teams that it just makes us all feel better about the tournament. It's more fun. And about ourselves. Do you do you sign on to that? Well, I, I would disagree that morality is whatever makes us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> I, I would I would maybe quibble with that de- definition. But yeah, overall, I, I, I do agree overall. I'm, I'm definitely a, uh, a more drama, more upsets, more fun person, um, you know, given that uh, at the at the margins that we're talking about um, <laughs> and given that basically Duke or North Carolina wins every year anyway. Um, you know, this is not uh, not going to leave out a team that had a had a serious chance of of winning, you know. Um, the big major teams are going are going to be fine. They're not going to. They're not really. You know, they're not going to suffer that much for missing out. Yeah, and as I was saying in my introductory comment, like th- there is a chance that a team like Wofford, which you know got a seven seed, they were an auto bid team, or somebody like Buffalo or Nevada. These lower um, tier teams that had really good seasons. We have recent evidence that indicates that a team like that can go to the Final Four, um, whether it's VCU or Wichita State or Butler or George Ma- George Mason. I'm probably like leaving something out. Loyola Chicago from last year. Um, whereas there's no evidence that a team with a profile of like an NC State or a Clemson that has a you know shitty record in a major conference and has all of these chances to beat good teams and loses every one of them, but has a good strength of schedule and maybe good, you know, better efficiency rankings. There really is no evidence that a team like that can perform really well in the tournament. So it's not just, oh, like it's more fun with the little guys. It actually seems supported by uh, the big data of the NCAA (laughs) tournament. Well, that's a psychological factor. I mean, you don't have, you don't see like a beloved nun at uh, at those bigger schools. You know, like you, you don't have that kind of like inspiring mascot uh, uh, run. Uh, and it, you know, maybe that's maybe that's what they're lacking. Uh, fair enough. NC State needs more nuns. That could help uh, close the gap on some of the uh, better teams and programs in the ACC. I mean, the, this debate is a little bit, as you said, Ben. It's kind of teams that are on the margins. It doesn't necessarily affect who wins the tournament. I do find it interesting, philosophically, though, uh, Mark Tracy 
wrote about this a bit in the Times, Stefan, about the concept of who's most deserving versus who's the best. I think a more interesting way to frame it maybe is the question of whether you should use metrics like Ken Pomeroy's that are more predictive. Um, So, you know, if you look at wins and losses, that's actually a worse way to, you know, be forward looking and think about who's going to win a game in the future. It's better to look at things like adjusted scoring margin and efficiency. Um, Or does it actually make sense to, if you're rewarding a team's body of work for a season, does it actually make more sense to look at teams that won close games that have more wins because, you know, what we're not evaluating if we look at a season, like if a team loses a huge number of games but has good efficiency, that's not really what playing games is supposed to determine, you know? Yeah, I think it's important that teams win the close games that they play in, right? I mean, that, and yeah, that is like an the, indication it, that they will, you know, I mean, it's one thing to be competitive in the regular season and lose a lot of close games, but you should be you should be evaluating teams based on something. It well, can't yeah, just be efficiency. But, you know, quote unquote, smart people will say that, um, you know, even so, like Jay Billis, who's not the most analytically minded person, you know, a lot of the conversation on Sunday was like, oh, so you think that, you know, Duke is so much better than North Carolina because if North Carolina had made that shot at the end, they would have won the game. Same with Kentucky and Tennessee. And I think that's that's right. Like if you win by one point, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a better team. But it's still like winning matters there. And there is like a kind of tension there and one that like analytically minded people are going to be less inclined to say that just because you won a game by one point, that doesn't mean we should give you think you're better or give you preferential treatment. Well, I think that what you you brought up uh, in the intro is true also that, that one of the, I mean, um, you know, the unique thing about about NCAA men's basketball is the number of teams that you are able to get to the tournament and, and the strength of schedule um, adjustments in those efficiency ratings are, you know, that's a model. That's not, you know, that's, they don't have perfect information. So I actually agree, you know, I, I, I have not, you know, I ha- I'm not, I haven't like gotten into the, you know, nuts and bolts of the strength of schedule modeling like myself, but certainly like there's some unknowns in there that you're figuring out by having these my like, you know, minor conference teams, uh, play in the tournament. So I think there's a value to that. I mean, you know, I think you can make an argument even, even from that kind of analytical perspective that, yeah, you want to see, uh, you know, this is, this is tournament is in part about seeing, you know, whether these models work, like are these conferences, you know, which con, you know, which conferences are actually are better, which of these, uh, small conference teams, um, actually will, will prove themselves, even though they didn't, uh, weren't able to accumulate a, you know, a high strength of schedule ranking, uh, because of you know because of uh, their situation, but one of the things that the committee did do very explicitly was give some of these small conference teams much higher seedings than I think we would have expected in previous years. I mean, Wofford, you said was a seven seed. Buffalo got a six seed. I watched the end of their conference championship game, and they looked okay, but it wasn't like <laughs> beat Arizona in the tournament last beat year. Arizona in the tournament last year, but I wasn't like looking at them going, "Ooh, they're gonna they're gonna make it. They're gonna be this year's Loyola." Um, so I think that was an interesting change. I mean, I don't know whether that is a change, you know, statistically, analytically, but it sure feels like one. You know, I mean, yeah, Wofford's won 20 games in a row, and they're going to be the classic um, mid-major team that everyone says, ooh, watch out for Wofford. Don't sleep on Wofford. They've won 20 in a row. They could win another six. Um, 
but the fact that the committee rewarded them rather than dissing them for who they are and what their name is is pretty interesting. It ha- just has seemed like such a classic cell phone by the NCAA and the committee for the last like many years because this is the reason that pe- people watch the tournament. A big reason is because you want those Cinderella teams early, and then right. you want to watch Duke and North Carolina like, at the end. Plus, the like mid-major Cinderella teams are better mm-hmm. uh, than than these like shitty major conference teams. And so it seems like there are commercial reasons to do it. There are actual competitive reasons to do it. And the reason not to do it are because the NCAA is like owned essentially or captured by the major conferences. Um, and so it's a good step. I mean, it just seems obvious for philosophical reasons that if you're talking about these quad one games, like you want the team like Belmont that's two and two, against quad one teams versus Clemson. That's a one, one in, in 10. ten. Right. I mean, that just seems obvious to me. All right, let's move on to Duke and Zion Williamson came back after missing a bunch of games with uh, his famous shoe explosion, knee injury from a couple weeks ago and his first game back against Syracuse. He went 13 of 13 from the field. The guy is so fucking good. It's crazy. It makes me insane how good he is. Um, and then after the game and after all of these games in the ACC tournament, Duke won the title. He said the things that defenders of the NCAA system say, uh, you know, I knew I was coming back. These are my brothers. brothers. I wouldn't have you know, left them uh, to play these games on, on their own. I wanted to come back sooner. I cried when I couldn't play against UNC because the game meant that much to me. As we discussed uh, on this program a while ago, I'm actually sympathetic to that position. We know what you think, Stefan, but let's uh, hear from Ben. The, well, uh, I was not, let me just say, I was not disappointed that I got to watch Zion Williamson right. play against North Carolina. You are, you are human. Uh, but Ben, what did you think of Zion's performance in the ACC tournament? Um, and what he said about, you know, how it felt to be back on the floor. Well, first of all, I I mean, he shot a a disappointing seven for 11 in the final. So I think we have to, I think we have to ask if science in a slump. Uh, so maybe that could be a storyline heading into the tournament. He missed, uh, he missed four entire shots in the, in the final game there. Um, you know, I, I generally come down on your side of, of things. You know, I, I would like to uh, see a world in which in which Zahan Williamson, uh, you know, is able to benefit from from the Nike shoes uh, that have gotten so much exposure um, due to him this year. Um, I don't I have no problem with that. But I also, you know, as a, I'm a college sports fan and I think there is something distinct about the college uh, sports experience, you know, for fans, for players uh, that is worth preserving. And so it actually, yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes me, um, you know, it it makes me want to root for someone when it, when it seems like an athlete shares that kind of feeling about the, uh, you know, about the, the atmosphere, um, and the uniqueness of college sports. So that always, you know, that I I always, I always enjoy seeing quotes like that. Stefan is smirking. (laughs) You know, Zion Williamson's relationship with Duke is so powerful. I mean, these past four months, have been amazing for him. I mean, the loyalty there is incredible. Look, I'm not discounting the fact that Zion Williamson does feel some loyalty to Duke. Krzyzewski has brought him there. Krzyzewski has given him the opportunity to perform and make himself a number one draft pick. Um, well, I, mean, I think I'm, that's I'm not fu- giving any credit to Krzyzewski, but just the virtue of the system that, by virtue of the system that exists, Zion Williamson is positioned better in this current system to become the number one draft pick in the NBA um, in, in, the, in the early summer. Well, I think that's kind of a false premise, though, because there is this micro trend of starting with 
Calipari, well, actually starting with the Fab Five with Michigan of... But really Calipari institutionalizing it. But of these like recruiting classes coming in and Trey Jones, the Duke point guard, was actually the one who Zion and R.J. Barrett credit with like putting the class together. Yeah, they had and a, so they the had loyalty, a group chat. The loyalty that I think he feels is towards his quote-unquote brothers and not wanting to let them down. Mm-hmm. Ben, you could probably talk about this personally with Michigan, but I do think it's interesting that um, you know these guys are not – the first order of business for them not, isn't necessarily like to play for the team on the – front of the jersey, although there is some aspect of that, but just this notion of like taking advantage of the system to like put together a group, do what you want to do, and then all leave together. Yeah, I mean, that that is, um, uh, you know, what Duke has to offer now. Uh, I think this is an article in GQ is as much the kind of it's an alumni network of NBA elite NBA players. So what these guys see themselves as being connected to is, you know, maybe not necessarily, um, you know, the rich academic tradition or the um, uh, the social life on campus, uh, but they see Duke as kind of a, in the way that Cal Perry has set up Kentucky, you know, as an elite proving ground training, you know, <laughs> training camp for future NBA players. Uh, and so that's kind of how these these tops top schools have have transitioned in the one and done era is because they they need to. You know, they do need to sell themselves, even if you're I, I mean, I would not be surprised if some money was changing hands here. But like there are a lot of places that can offer you money. Uh, and so they have, you know, so there has there has to be something beyond that. And what and I think what Duke has done and and what that uh, that comment um, by Jones and, and, and those guys comments speak to um, is the way that uh, the, the way that these kind of schools are, are trying to brand themselves uh, in this, you know, under these kind of strange set of rules. Well, let's just be clear that Duke hasn't done a whole lot other than piggyback off of what John Calipari saw at Kentucky and how he implemented this and basically sanctioned it. He basically told these basketball players that it is okay for you to do this. They've just added like a couple of, uh, you know, barrels full of sanctimony. Yeah, totally. Um and and what the players in you know to their credit what they have done is basically mimicked what NBA players started doing 10 years ago and banding together and exerting whatever agency they can exert and in college basketball of course that agency is rather limited but at least they're exerting something i thought what was really interesting is when cbs interviewed calipari uh on the selection show Got he had a jerseys. bunch of jerseys yeah. behind them they weren't kentucky jerseys they look like U.S. national team jerseys yep. of uh, of players that had played for him at Kentucky. So the message there is not old school tie. It's here's what you can do if you come to Kentucky. You can go on to play for the U.S. national team in the Olympics and make a boatload of money in the NBA. All right. Let's end by talking about some first round matchups. Uh, Murray State and Marquette is kind of everybody's pick for the best game. We didn't mention yet Murray State is one of the smaller conference teams. They go on the, an auto bid. They're in the same conference as Belmont. Um, and they've got John Morant, who's going to be, if not uh, the number two pick behind Zion, probably the number three pick behind Zion and R.J. Barrett from Duke. And Marquette has Marcus Howard, who's a 5'11 guy who has had uh, 45 or more points in a game three times this year. So that'll be... And I believe they're the number one and two scoring leaders in the NCAA this year. 
So watch that game on Thursday afternoon if you can. Um, should we talk about Yale and LSU or Ben? Uh, I, I don't know if we need to spend much time on Michigan and Montana, the rematch that no one in America wanted. I think we can skip that one. I, I personally am more interested in Allison and, and Yale myself. Uh, Dan Wetzel of Yahoo <laughs> tweeted the contrast between LSU, uh, the coach being caught on the FBI wiretap saying he, was, he had made a strong-ass offer to one of its uh, <laughs> players and Yale offering uh, or Yale getting $1.2 million for a fake women's soccer player. Uh, it's good to see the streams being crossed in this way. Stefan, yeah. the two the two scandals. I'm excited about all together this. at once. Which does make me wonder in arranging these matchups if the NCA was trying to troll itself. I mean, how? <laughs> what better way to draw attention to how fucked up college sports are than to have two schools at the center of ridiculous scandals, but very typical um, type scandals? A lot of money potentially changing hands, and a lot of money definitely changing hands. Um, what a way to, to focus the, the lead writing abilities of every basketball Counter, writer in the country. Counter argument there is that they put the game on at 1240 on Thursday on True TV. So if they <laughs> trying to bury the game. If they wanted to hide it, then, then that's what they would have done. It's going to be a strong well, I mean, game. I mean, others had pointed this out immediately, but like the theory that there was some kind of like rye or, or troll factor going on here, I think it's pretty strongly proven by the next game next yes. on the East bracket, which is Louisville, Minnesota, which is Rick Pitino's former team against uh, his son, Richard Pitino's team. Uh, and that will game will be taking place at the, at the same time as LSU Yale. So it's like first game of the tournament. So I, I feel like you cannot possibly make that game the first game of the tournament without having some kind of sick sense of humor about it. What I love, though, about the Yale LSU game is it gives the opportunity for pundits to do their Ivy League thing every year. Ooh, this is the upset in the making. Yale, a lot of seniors. Watch <laughs> out. LSU's reeling from scandal. How come every Ivy League team has five senior starters every year? How is that possible? It just seems like it seems like it shouldn't be the case. John Feinstein in the Washington Post already has Yale penned in to play the beneficiary of such an upset, Maryland. Oh, yeah. Well, that is that is our John Feinstein Oya of the of the show, yes. spon sponsored by no one. Before we get to our conversation about the college admission scandal, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. We're going to talk about ESPN's list of the world's 100 most famous athletes. Carmelo Anthony is number 65, only going up. Uh, he'll probably be at number 62 next year. To hear that conversation and to hear about other uh, athletes who are famous who are not Carmelo Anthony, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
The wiretaps in the college admissions bribery scandal captured this conversation between William Singer, who ran the criminal enterprise, and a private equity executive named William McGlashan about what sport they would pretend that McGlashan's son played to get him into USC of all schools. Playing the role of William Singer, Josh Levine, and I'll be playing the role of William McGlashan. Go ahead, Josh. Well, I had a boy last year. I made him a long snapper. I love it. He was 145 pounds, long snapper. I love it. I love it. That is so funny. This reminded me of an email conversation between a music producer and another person who got into college the old-fashioned way because his father donated a lot of money to the school. That was Donald Trump Jr. The Crown Prosecutor of Russia offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to your father, the producer wrote. Donald Trump Jr. replied, if it's what you say... I love it. I love it. I really hope I'm the first person to make this important connection in the world of doofus entitled bros. Josh, this story, of course, has it all. Movie stars, hedge fund bros, Instagram influencers, the 0.1% behaving even more crassly and amorally than you thought possible, and schadenfreude by the truckload. From our limited sports perspective, though, the fake kickers and water polo players and pole vaulters with their faces photoshopped onto the bodies of actual athletes provided real new evidence of how truly messed up college sports are. And that's my first takeaway. Our capacity for surprise is pretty drained these days in college sports as in life. But here we are. Yale's women's soccer coach took a million dollars in bribes, $1.2 million, to help get some asshole's daughter into the school. Uh, I feel like it's against the law not to go to Ben first if Donald Trump Jr.'s name is invoked. It's like a Candyman situation if you say Donald Trump Jr.'s name three times. Uh, Ben, you wrote about uh, Trump Jr.'s response to the admission scandal last week. Yeah, he sent some like gloating tweet to Felicity Huffman. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, it was Lori Laughlin. I was one of one of our one of our two, you know, one of the two stars of yeah. the of the uh, experience. Yeah, like gloating about uh, about how they had bribed uh, the schools to get their kids in, um, demonstrating you know a little bit of a lack of self awareness on his part. I shocking, think shocking, shocking. Yeah, so there are a bunch of questions that we can ask about the admissions scandal. One thing I wanted to point out first, and and Nick Green, our colleague, did a post on this, is I really want to commend the water polo coach at USC because you could argue, and many people did, that, um, you know, giving up these slots in these uh, sports teams for rich kids who don't actually play the sports is wrong, that it's bad. But this water polo coach, Jovan Vavich, um, allegedly, let's, let's not forget the allegedly, uh, was giving up like a couple slots, one slot a year to players who didn't play water polo and would send photoshopped photos of themselves with, uh, you know, 20 feet out of the water or whatever because they had never played water polo. This dude was doing this, like raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, won 15 national championships. So it seems not to have compromised at all his ability to coach winning water polo teams. Like we praise coaches for doing uh, you know, a, a great job with a limited roster. It can also be hard to coach stars. This guy managed to succeed while like doing this side hustle. And 
I think that it just shows that, you know, he's the coach of the century and the Pac-12 for water polo. <laughs> I mean, what what more could you accomplish? It's ama- It's an amazing run for Jovan. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, really, you- that's really all, all I have to say. Uh, there are also uh, allegations uh, that the uh, Yale uh, soccer coach, uh, two pl- former players, say he he got the players on the team to to do his uh, master's degree work for him to work on papers for him. So he kind of had it coming and going, uh, which is <laughs> which is 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 maybe not as impressive as Jovan, but is 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 must also be mentioned. At LSU, we uh, we write the papers for the athletes. At Yale, the athletes <laughs> write the papers for the coaches. Um, but there are so many like big questions here that we can ask and try to answer. One of the big ones, Stefan, was should there be priority in athletic admissions at all? I edited a piece by Ben Strauss a while ago about Wesleyan. This is not a D1 school. It's a D3 school. But I think some of the same questions apply. And at Wesleyan, something like 25% of the slots in the freshman class go to um, – you know, incoming students who play sports and just does it make sense at all like to give preference to somebody who is good at water polo or tennis or soccer because apparently this is a thing where the administrations aren't like paying super close attention to whether these uh, kids are actually good at playing sports. Uh, nobody seems to care or or notice and so why are they there in the first place? Well, they're there for the simple reason that has been pointed out in that piece, Ben Strauss, it's affirmative action for white kids. Um, this is how to get sort of less academically talented white athletes into school. And I'm sure there's some correlation between the loyalty that athletes give back to the university once they've left and succeeded in life and have some money to donate. Um to athletics. Athletics are giant drivers of of donations to universities. And these kids are not on financial aid. Generally, they're willing to pay full price to go to these schools and play right. their sport of choice, except in this case, they're not playing any sport at all. I mean, Ben, there, there is an argument to be made that letting an, uh, an athlete in uh, is – it gives the opportunities – to you know, teenagers who wouldn't get the chance to play, or sorry, who wouldn't get the chance to go to college. Otherwise, that succeeding in a sport and in school shows organization and time management skills and just a commitment to you know a drive to succeed. I think there is like a reasonable argument there, but um, well, I, I think the reasonable argument, if I could interrupt, Josh, is that maybe there's a reasonable <laughs> argument for it to be made in the revenue generating sports in football and basketball, which are generally attracting students that historically have not had the opportunity to attend elite colleges and universities. The you know the 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 question here is that, and in most of these cases, look, I use the the kicker long snapper. Um, wiretaps in the intro, but a lot of these cases were these secondary Olympic sports. No one would notice. The admissions officers aren't going to check to see whether some kid actually is playing tennis at Georgetown or not. Um, they're just going to go along with it. Um, and so, so if we're talking about these pre- preferences, really, it's like, do you really need to be making exceptions for squash players? Or if a squash player knows that, oh, they've got a squash team, that might be fun to do and can t- keep, so I can keep playing when I get there. 
Yeah, I mean, I, the the example that comes up when when people talk about you know why the SAT uh, is not a you know a perfect uh, measurement of of intellectual ability, uh, the kind of the quintessential example of something like this is uh, a vocabulary um, question about a regatta, uh, and you know if you're not coming from a background where you're around regattas, you might not know what that means, and it's not because you're dumb, it's because you didn't go to regattas. Um, and so it's kind of appropriate that, uh, you know, the sport that was, that seemed like one of the heavily involved in this was sailing. You know, um, obviously, I, I think it's, you know, I don't think you could deny in the abstract that, uh, uh, of course, someone who is successful in a, in a sport uh, and also is a pretty good student, uh, that, 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 that demonstrates something about them. But, but also, obviously, uh, it is pretty difficult to in the position to demonstrate that you're a good sailor, uh, unless, uh, you come from an, an affluent coastal background. So I, th- I mean, I, that, the, the coastal fact bias, <laughs> like literal coastal bias, you have to be next to a body of water. So I think it's, uh, you know, I, like that's where the kind of like the abstract argument for it breaks down. It's like, of course, I mean, you know, m- most of the people who are trying to get into to these schools, or, or most of the student high school students in America, are not going to have ever had the chance to demonstrate that they could, uh, you know, get good grades and 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 sail at the same time. Can we just shout out to the Stanford sailing coach who was accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars to put in fake sailors because he didn't keep that money for himself. He wanted that money funneled to the Stanford sailing program. Uh, good man. High level of morality there. This does provide some, uh, you know, supporting evidence for my take from last week about all coaches being sociopaths. So thank you to Felicity Huffman and Laurie Lachlan for helping strengthen my take there. But, you know, back to the affirmative action for white men point, it, it, it has always been gross. One aspect of the grossness of the NCAA system is how the revenue generating sports of football and men's basketball, in which like a su- super majority of players are black, are you know, the revenue from those are funneled back in to these sports. You know, the the positive thing on it is that they're funneled to supporting a, a lot of women's sports and that there are more opportunities for women to continue playing athletics than there were a generation ago. But, you know, what this exposes is that a lot of that money gets funneled to things like sailing and squash and water polo and gives opportunities to, uh, you know. Suburban white kids that have been playing, that have been sailing and playing squash and water polo since they were five years old because their parents have invested tens and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars into allowing them to do that. But Ben, I mean, is there a risk here in us extrapolating wildly from a few outrageous examples? We do not have knowledge about how widespread this is, if this one scam was an outlier, or if these sorts of side doors and bribes are more common? Like, do you have any kind of sense or conjecture about whether, (laughs) I mean, it just doesn't feel like there are going to be that many, uh, you know, Muffies and Buffies paying, you know, their their parents paying $1.2 million dollars uh, to pretend that they're on the squash team. It's like, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I feel I, like, you know, legacies and endowing buildings, like that's a, that's a thing that we're familiar with. But this like particular flavor of scam, I don't know how big a deal it is. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it it would be unbelievable to me if there were that many people getting five hundred thousand dollar bribes uh, and you know and photoshopping heads on onto um, water polo players. But I think one thing that 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 this is uh, this has raised is just how lax, as you mentioned, the admissions department is here. I mean, they're not going back and cross checking that these people who got these coveted, coveted, coveted slots even ended up on the teams. I mean, and that was surprising to me. I mean, well, it just shows kind of, the power that coaches and athletic department officials have to dictate. I mean, with the water polo guy in particular, it's like, okay, is the admissions office going to tell the dude who won 15 national championships that, you know, maybe this kid who he's lying about having played in Italy or whatever is not right. actually good enough. But the the thing that is just indefensible is like not even checking to see if these recruits are, are playing on so the team. At some schools it is. I think that the Yale came apart a little bit because Yale did detect that one of these women was not playing. And then at USC, there was uh, this was in the uh, in the complaint that at USC, the one kid who was admitted falsely was confused while he why he was asked to attend like the the athlete uh, uh, induction, the athlete the kid uh, who wasn't told by his. <clears throat> Parents. parents, right, was asked to attend the athlete uh, orientation session. He was like, why am I going to that? I'm not an athlete. And then the, you know, frantic calls and the, the coach told the parent to just tell him it was a mistake and don't go. Um, and then telling the parent, like, no one's going to check. Um, so it, that to me, you're right, Ben. I mean, that, the lack of oversight is kind of astonishing. It's not that hard. You know, we're talking about a handful of. In the non in non football sports, a handful of slots that typically each coach is granted every year. The long snapper thing is anything related to football is so confusing. Right, and I, I have no idea how this could happen because even fan, you know, fans like Ben and I, like we know who the long snappers are that LSU there are, and Michigan there signed. Are, there it are, just makes there are message no boards. sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean I, I yeah, took I, mean, I took it as an insult to kickers and long snappers, frankly, that you think <laughs> you, you should get away with this. I you mean should. it was really insulting. Um, okay, let's talk about how uh, Phil Mickelson and Joe Montana used the same uh fake nonprofit to assist their children with their uh, academic careers. Uh what did you make of the Mickelson and Montana appearances in this scandal, Ben? Uh, I want to. The thing that really stood out to me, um, I was looking at the, uh, I think the Deadspin article about this. Um, Joe Montana's Twitter handle is Joseph Montana, <laughs> um, which was an interesting choice for him to make. Uh, and, well, Joe and, Montana has always seemed like a fake name. He is at <laughs> Joe Montana, though. He just uses Joseph. Yeah. Well, right. That that made it even more, more curious. That it wasn't because yeah. he couldn't get you know Joe Montana. It was like he had to at some point type in. He's like, "How do people? How do I want people to know me on this on this social media <laughs> service? I think I'll go by my you know my famous my famous name, Joseph Montana." Um, but I just but, again, I want to emphasize that as a society, I feel like we're too used to the fact that his name is Joe Montana. Like if, <laughs> like if we estranged it a little bit and like his name is Joe Idaho or Joe Wyoming, we would recognize how weird it is. Philip Mickelson's tweet. <laughs> However, about this, I thought was very interesting. He said that they're shocked by the revelation of these events. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, we would not. Well, we were not part of this fraud. Our kids would disown us if we ever. His tried daughter to goes to Brown, right? Yeah, I think so. Right. I mean, that was what Mo Montana said. Something similar that I think speaks to what we were just talking about. 
Mr. Singer's company provided nothing more than minimal consulting services to our family, like so many other families. Uh, yes, uh, so many other families who, who employ minimal consulting services to fill out their college application. I think that kind of tells you uh, what, kind of, um, what kind of affluent uh, space that this, this company was operating in. So the Yale coach, just before we Yale before we leave really, here, let's yeah the fulcrum. Let's of this let's story. just remind people because this is a, this is truly amazing. The Yale coach not only got bribes to allow these uh, students in, he then got the students to write papers for him. Mm-hmm. Or were those separate students? Or was it the same? Was no, it no, the those same were student? separate students. Those were just women that were on the soccer team. Got it. Well, you use the smart soccer players to write your papers, and you use the the dumb non soccer players right. to buy your to buy your vacation home. Yeah, you're not okay. gonna like have no, that smart. kid. That's write really the smart. Paper. That's that, really that smart. That would have made no sense. These coaches were they're, they're not dummies. I, I respect the hustle. I also like the fact that he was inducted into the Connecticut Soccer Hall of Fame while this was <laughs> all going on, while he was helping the government make this case. Are there enough candidates for the Candidate Soccer Hall of Fame that you could bypass the Yale coach? <laughs> or otherwise, would there just be no one to induct? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A few months after giving Odell Beckham Jr. a $20 million signing bonus and 13 days after New York Giants general manager Dave Gettleman said that the franchise didn't sign Beckham to trade him, the Giants traded Odell Beckham Jr. to the Cleveland Browns. The Giants got back a first-round pick, a third-rounder, and safety Jabril Peppers, who Ben remembers from, from Michigan and probably would not trade for Odell Beckham Jr. <laughs> uh, that haul earned the Giants a trade grade of D+. From ESPN's Bill Barnwell, it could have been worse. Barnwell wrote that this has the potential to be a franchise resetting trade, the sort of deal that gets everyone fired and leaves fans muttering for decades about what could have been. Is that the plus part? That that could be the the plus. I like franchise resetting trade. It's like the it's it's like uh, your computer is like not working at all, and you Josh, (laughs) their button back there. Uh, The Giants just called the commissioner's office like our franchise isn't working. They're like. The, and uh, Roger Goodell's like, just press Control-Alt-Delete, and, and it'll be working in five years when you uh, draft Dwayne ha- Haskins. Um, some of my favorite uh, ramifications of this trade were that uh, cops in Shaker Heights, Ohio, <laughs> per the New York Post, uh, responded to a report of someone, quote, running up and down the street yelling and screaming at 8.18 p.m., on Tuesday, concerned officers subsequently located a juvenile male in the street who told the officer he was celebrating the Cleveland Browns adding Odell Beckham Jr. to the team. Seems like a reasonable response. Uh, ben, our pal Kevin Clark from The Ringer tweeted that this trade uh, evinces a clear difference in philosophy. The Browns have figured out that having good players is good, while the Giants think having good players is bad. We will see who is right. What do you, what do you think? 
Uh, well, I blame I blame Bill Belichick for all of this. Uh, I mean, it it feels like there was so many years in which the Patriots were trading a person you'd heard of for a set of draft picks that didn't seem that high, and I think that kind of like rubbed off on the Dave Gettleman's of the world, um, who like were just like uh, kind of talked into believing that like you trade someone for draft picks, you get to win the trade. It's like no, they always say that Bill Belichick won the trade, so why didn't I get to win the trade? Well, this is running up two different Belichick philosophies here. There's also the philosophy of signing, for instance, Randy Moss, the wide receiver who is going to be uh, in the Hall of Fame, is currently in the Hall of Fame, was going to be in the Hall of Fame when uh, the Patriots got him, but is considered a prima donna or a head case or annoying. Um, and Clark, uh, Kevin Clark wrote this whole piece, Stefan, yeah. about – how uh, sort of like what what Ben was saying, the teams, for whatever reason now, are not appreciating good players enough and that they think they're smart enough that they can, you know, scheme their way to success without having great players. They think great players are too expensive. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the, the rationale is, but I think the Odo Beckham trade and the Antonio Brown tw- trade are both evidence of, you know, whether you want to call it hubris, whatever you want to call it, of teams being like, we're going to move on from these talented players and our, like, brilliant organizational philosophy is going to lead us to success. Well, the Antonio Brown trade is is a little bit murkier because he did want to renegotiate a contract. He did want a lot more money. Um, but the Beckham one obviously makes no fucking sense on any level as Kevin Clark and others wrote. But we should also note that in both cases, the Brown trade and the Beckham trade, what binds them together is that these trades made absolutely no financial sense for these teams. The NFL has a salary cap and both the Steelers and the Giants are going to end up having like $20 million of cap space that they can't spend this year, aka dead money, because, you know, that's money that was allocated to Brown and and Beckham. And so not only are they losing out on having good players, they're losing out on being able to sign any players. Right. Um, And what I think, to get back to your earlier point, this reflects a little bit is the, use the word hubris, and it really is the sort of guiding philosophy of most NFL front offices, which is that we know better than the players. It is this sort of ultimate disrespect to what the players do, that they are the creative force behind the games, that they are the ones that generate the plays, they are the ones that fans care about. The arrogance that is embedded into NFL management is that the guys in the ball caps and the khaki shorts standing on the sidelines are more powerful than the players on the field. And therefore, the players are secondary. They are these interchangeable parts. Do coaches wear ball caps and khaki shorts? They wear ball caps. Most yeah, of them they, got- wear, they mostly wear the same shorts that, uh, I guess, the athletic shorts. In the yeah, you got the, the, the polo, yeah. the polo and the clipboard and the shorts. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, the shorts. Yeah. yeah, the pleats are out. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we have any sympathy for the idea, uh, Ben, that you know that there's like a workplace asshole issue? I mean, it, sure. it seems like maybe there was more of an issue with Antonio Brown and the fact the Giants like claiming 
that Odell Beckham, what was the what was the quote we were enjoying yeah. before he, we re- recorded here, Ben? A source told Sportsnet New York that Beckham had become too much of a pain in the ass. But this is the this is the good one. And there was a real fear that eventually it would get worse. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I, yeah, sure. Like, there's a real fear that eventually anything could happen. I mean, hey, you know what? The, 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 there was no eventually when it came to the roster. It is worse. Instantly like, worse. The stuff about Odell Beckham is, um, you know, he seems like maybe a little bit of a weirdo, enjoys having his photo taken. Who among us doesn't? He, like, kissed the kicking net one time. But there's no – his teammates so. all seem to like him. Uh, kissing a kicking net is appropriate. Uh, and he works really hard. With Brown, it seems like more of an edge case. He was, uh, you know, calling out his teammate, like, refused to play in, in a game last year when they were in playoff contention, um, was instigating fights uh, publicly that made it such that, you know, that they they're, you could argue that he forced – their right. hands. So and there had been other here. issues previously, too. There was some petty jealousy about Juju Smith-Schuster becoming a good player. I mean, there, there are issues there with him, but still. Juju jealousy. Juju jealousy. But still, he's like one of the five best players in the NFL. I mean, and this is what I think we talked about this a little bit with the with the Kristaps Porzingis trade also is the kind of front offices have caught on to the idea that you can use that as an excuse. Um, not only that you can you can portray yourself as being savvy because you picked up X and Y draft picks and assets, but that, you know, this idea of a culture like, the, you know, the San Antonio Spurs came along and had one for 20 years with different players. And it's all because what is it all because of it's because of the culture. So you can kind of you see these teams starting to use like locker room culture as an excuse for doing any dumb thing. And like, you know, a kind of apotheosis of that is saying that they did it because maybe in the future, Beckham would have been bad for the culture. Well, but they were willing to give him $90 million like several months it earlier. Makes no, it makes no sense. And, you know, the a notion that there is something intrinsically flawed with the personalities here also feels like that paternalistic bullshit that the NFL wants to project, like to make us look like we're the good guys and the players are the bad guys here. Kevin Clark in that same piece talked about how he had watched both Beckham and Brown at practice and really paid attention to how they worked. And he talked about like, you know, Brown spending a lot more time after practice, catching balls thrown, you know, slung out of the jugs machine. And that Beckham, when he hurt his right arm, did everything left-handed, including brushing his teeth so that he could become a better ball He also catcher. mentioned that Brown had his own personal water guy, which is a nice touch. Yeah. But Hang on one second. Can our personal water guy come in now? <laughs> I'm running a little uh, low. Uh, Stefan is actually running a, l- a little bit low. That is true to life. The thing that also connects the Beckham and Porzingis deals, Ben, is that if the players were pissed at the franchise and were malcontents, it would be the franchise's fault because those franchises are awful. And so (laughs) the idea that like, oh, a player is like calling out the Knicks for being poorly run, like how how dare he is like, oh, no, he actually has a brain is the reason that he would do that. The conflict with the Steelers and there's a little bit of a connection here between the Steelers and the Giants is like the the organization's totally being controlled by um, Ben Roethlisberger and the right. Giants just, for God knows why, just Eli Manning is still on that team. With Roethlisberger, it kind of makes sense because for all that Roethlisberger is 
an asshole and and problematic in in various ways. He's a good player still. And so all of the talk about you know Roethlisberger being a terrible teammate and Roethlisberger not knowing anyone's name and refusing to like help the the new running backs and fumbling on purpose despite Todd Haley, which I think we all would fumble on purpose <laughs> despite Todd Haley. But again, like if you have Ben Roethlisberger on your team, he's a you know a good quarterback. He's gonna help you in games. The Eli Manning thing is 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 totally mystifying. But um you know you could understand why Antonio Brown, who considers himself and and correctly considers himself one of the best players in the league, that he would just be annoyed that the the team is always taking Ben's side and not his side. Again, the Giants thing just makes makes no sense on this or any other level. I mean, they're also have. I mean, they're also wasting a bunch of money to bring Eli back. It's you know, it's like they they could have not done that, and they and they and they, so they like they made made these two decisions back to back, kind of like guaranteeing themselves to go two and fourteen. I, it's really it's it's really remarkable. I mean, especially considering the Giants were supposedly one of these teams that did have a, a good culture. You know, like they're kind of a you know talked about as one of the NFL's uh, blue buds with the uh, with the Mara family and the kind of the record of success they've had. They partied on a boat together before a playoff game. That that shows uh, tightness um, among uh, teammates. But this does work. Like um, I found this NJ.com poll in which two-thirds of Giants fans said that the team had made the right call in trading Beckham. And it just shows how fans, I think especially NFL fans actually, more than – NBA, where we increasingly just root for the players rather than the franchises. But NFL fans just always support the franchise over a player who makes money or grouses or or demands a trade, which which Beckham did not do in this case. But it's also, I think, this larger phenomenon in all of sports of the best player on a bad team getting blamed for the team being bad, as if it's his, as if it's his fault, as like, opposed to the bad player on the bad team. Exactly, like, Manning it's not blamed. like the Giants have been good with Odell Beckham recently. So obviously, it's his fault. Like that's how fan thinking works. It is one of the great, one of the many great ruses that the NFL has managed to perpetrate successfully for for decades now. Um, that franchise matters above all, and the legacy of the Maras and and <laughs> the, the Hallises and you know and, and the Rooney family. Uh, takes precedent. I mean, let's not forget also that the Steelers let Le'Veon Bell leave too. Um, they've let two the two you know arguably two of the five best players in the NFL go in the last year. Bell signed with the Jets last week. I'm also not convinced that the Steelers are going to be bad. Now it seems clear that the Giants are going to be bad. Right. You know, the Steelers had uh, James Conner last year sure. filled in for Le'Veon Bell, and you know one of the reasons that the Browns look so smart now is because they have. A quarterback, Baker Mayfield, on a on a rookie deal, and so they can pay Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham and you know the other guys that they've brought in this offseason relatively big money because they're not paying Eli Manning dollars for their quarterback. And the other kind of cross sport thing that I find really interesting here is that the Browns wouldn't have been able to make this move if they hadn't done the tanking for draft picks. Maneuver when Sashi Brown was the general manager, some of these picks that they acquired are the ones that are going to the Giants in this trade. And Ben, it's very similar to how the Sixers implemented the, the process where they had Sam Hinkie for the tank and get draft picks era. Then they brought in Elton Brand and they immediately just start cashing in those chips for 
Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris. The Browns are now in the we are in contention. We're going to cash in and get, uh, you know, Odell get, you know, turn turn this like draft capital into actual players. And it seems like it's really smart <laughs> and they're going to be good. Yeah. And another thing that they did that, that is reminiscent of the Sixers was, I mean, the Sixers took a, a big chance on, on Joel Embiid um, when he was injured. They drafted when he was injured, um, you know, because they're drafting for talent and they're not, you know, they're, they're decided they're not going to be worried about the about the injury, about, um, you know, I think while he was rehabbing, there were some questions about how seriously he was taking it. It turns out that, that Hinky was right. Uh, they were right to have taken him. Um, and a similar thing happened with Mayfield. You know, I mean, you guys remember he, there were some questions about his attitude because he was arrogant. He planted the field at Ohio State. He, you know, he grabbed his crotch, whatever. He's not that tall. He's listed at six one. Um, so yeah, another similar case where the team, you know, this is this is pretty much the opposite of keeping Eli Manning. You know, you, you instead of like keeping the, you know, instead of going with a guy who just like looks like looks and sounds like a franchise quarterback, even if it's not there, they they took a guy who may or may not fit the profile, um, but had the talent, and it's and it's, and it's so far it's working out for them. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. Josh, you mentioned in the introduction to the show that the federal investigation into the admissions uh, practices at these universities and colleges was nicknamed Varsity Blues after the 1999 movie of that name about a Have you guys seen Varsity Blues? Football team. Oh, yeah, several times. I've only seen the ending, like the last 30 minutes once when I was channel surfing. So Speaking of Brown, he, he the Brown the University was involved in that yes, movie, right? Yes, the quarterback of the James uh, Vanderbeek. James Vanderbeek, Jonathan Mox Moxon at West Canaan High School ends up going to Brown. Yeah. He's a quarterback with a brain and a heart of gold. He puts a copy of Slaughterhouse 5 in his playbook during practice, I think. That shows how <laughs> that's like cuz um cuz he he reads. He's Do a want, smart guy. Should we listen to a clip? I haven't actually listened to the clip, so we're just going to run the clip. Ben seems to be the varsity blues expert here. Ben, set it up for us. Uh, I believe that this is uh, injured quarterback uh, Lance Harbor, uh, played by the late Paul Walker. <laughs> ben uh, is doing uh, all of this extemporaneously, by the way. Laying out uh, a second half strategy after kind of a coup. There's kind of like a mutiny, uh, and the team uh, the team like overrules John Voight at halftime, Coach Kilmer, John Voight at halftime. Uh, and then just uh, and wings it in the second half. They just go out and play, uh, and this is them discussing their their strategy. Oh, listen up! I need five wide receivers. We're running the oop to No tight ends. No running backs. I want four receivers stacked left. Tweeter, you on the right. We're gonna overload their left side, force them to cover Tweeter one on one. And no huddles. What? I'll call the place from the line. Defense will never know what hit them. All right, let's go. Come on, bring it. Let's go. Let's go. Three, one, two, three, go. Why is that not among the great inspirational football <laughs> speeches up there with win one for the Gipper and uh, any given Sunday? That's like a pretty good scheme. Like that's a very modern forward thinking scheme. Like a no, no huddle, 
four wide, four, you know, stack of gliders here. That's very, that's like very uh, on trend. For well, the, I was reading, I was reading a, a Sports Illustrated retrospective about the film, a 20th anniversary. <laughs> the film. Okay. The film. <laughs> it's the film. <laughs> <laughs> that so they brought in a lot of consultants. I mean, that was sort of they they wanted to make sure that the offensive schemes were uh, were of it of their time. Thank you, yep. thank you, Pauline Kale. Uh, you could tell that that wasn't the quote unquote smart guy quarterback because he said five wide receivers, no tight ends, no running backs. We know, man, you can't have yeah. any tight ends or running backs if you have five wide receivers. Yeah. Just get to the point. We need to get we need to get this play uh, play out there. All right, so Stefan. We've gone through this whole long varsity yeah. blue spiel, but you haven't told us what the name of afterballs are. Ben, what's your <laughs> Mox? What's your Jonathan? Was it Mox Moxon or just Mox? Yeah, I think they would just you just go by Mox. You know, he's a one name. He was a, a one, one name, name guy. kind of guy. All right, yeah. Ben, what's your? I'm gonna I'm gonna by the way opt out of afterballs this week. I had a long weekend, so apologies <laughs> to everyone that was waiting for me to do an afterball. Ben, what's your Mox? I will step in for you like Mox stepped in for Lance Harbor. Oh, good point. Uh, and my, uh, my Mox goes to Terrence Mann of Florida State. Uh, Mann, a 6'7 senior guard, is a key starter for the Florida State team that won 14 of 15 games to close its season uh, and reached the ACC tournament final with an upset victory over Virginia. So I was watching that ACC final, which was against Duke, when I saw Mann's name and I thought to myself, isn't Terrence Mann the reclusive author character played by James Earl Jones in Field of Dreams, who Kevin Costner's character tracks down in Boston. They go to a game at Fenway Park. Indeed, I was right. That is the name of Jones' character. And in fact, FSU's Terrence Mann is from Lowell, Massachusetts. His mother, uh, Dania LaForce, was for a time the women's basketball coach at Northeastern. She's now the head coach at Rhode Island. But as Mann explained to the Boston Globe in 2015, he's actually named after his grandmother, Terancia, and at least at that time had not seen the film, had not seen Field of Dreams. In a completely coincidental twist, meanwhile, I was also looking last night at the roster for the 2012 University of Kentucky uh, championship team. Uh, that was the team led by Anthony Davis. I noticed that that team featured a 5'11 walk-on guard from Situate, Massachusetts, named Sam Malone, which is the name of Ted Danson's ex-ball player, bartender character in Cheers. Now, in a 2012 Salon article, uh, the Kentucky Sam Malone's father said he was not specifically named after the Cheers character, but a 2015 Louisville Courier-Journal piece says he was. Uh, the younger Malone also dressed up as Danson's character for a 2014 Instagram post. Uh, the mystery uh, may not be resolved yet, but Malone at Kentucky, in any case, was one of those beloved garbage time guys. Uh, get in the game when they're ahead by 20. He only scored seven points in four seasons, but he did capitalize on his popularity, according to the Courier-Journal article, by selling Sam Malone's own shirts for $24.99, he is now the CEO of Guru.club, which describes itself as the first ever app that connects brands and nano-influencers through a private invitation-only shopping platform. UK fans and nano-influencers can find him on Twitter at SamMaloneUK13. I just Googled uh, Chandler Bang Basketball and nothing comes <laughs> up. Uh, Joey Tribbiani Basketball, also no. also nothing. No. Uh, a shame. Uh, I want to do a mox. I was just going to ask you to do one. Josh, what's your mox? This past week, Raycom Sports aired broadcasts of the ACC basketball tournament for the final time, ending its run as a provider of syndicated basketball and football broadcasts, a service it started providing in 1979. Starting this coming fall, the Raycom Games, which aired on over-the-air 
networks, uh, across the ACC footprint uh, of this great United States. Those games will move to ESPN, which is launching its own ACC network. Raycom is going to do some back-end and digital stuff for said ACC network, but the branded Raycom game is dead. The foundation for Raycom was actually built in the 50s, according to a piece on the website WRALsportsfan.com. In 1957, a guy named C.D. Chesley put together a group of five North Carolina TV stations to broadcast the national championship game between uh, North Carolina and Kansas. That was the famed uh, game in which North Carolina beat Wilt Chamberlain in uh, multiple overtimes. That evolved into an ACC Game of the Week, which was sponsored by Jefferson Pilot Life Insurance and featured this classic theme song. That just really makes me want to buy life insurance and watch uh, John Lucas and Tom McMillan at the same time. Uh, There's an article I found on Greensboro.com, which argued, I think persuasively, that while uh, coaches in the ACC were originally uh, opposed to putting games on television, fearing they would cut into attendance, that this was actually the key or one of the keys to making the ACC the premier basketball conference in the nation that uh, players would want to come to these schools, North Carolina, Duke, NC State, Maryland, what have you, because the games were on television. You know, one or two games a week back in the 60s and 70s was a big deal before every game was on TV. Uh, The rights went from C.D. Chesley to uh, Metro Sport and then to Raycom because Chesley was paying a million dollars a year for the rights of the games, which is not that much money. Um, and then it went up to $3 million to Met- for Metro Sports. And then Raycom paid the princely sum of $15 million over three years to syndicate uh, games uh, a bunch of times a week, multiple games per week. Uh, Raycom and Jefferson Pilot Sports eventually acquired the rights to a bunch of college games. They showed football and basketball games from not just the ACC, but also the SEC, Pac-10, the Metro Conference, the Big Eight, the Southwest Conference. I hope uh, people uh, are feeling nostalgic pangs for the Metro Conference. I know I am. Tulane was was involved there. Uh, in that piece on the WRAL Sports site, the Raycom chief operating officer, Jimmy Rayburn, said, we provide a way for a lot of people who do not have cable or satellite to watch the games. Uh, And that included uh, myself. I grew up watching Jefferson Pilot SEC games in the 80s. And so this is all giving me the the death of Raycom. It's uh, a a lone tear is falling down my cheek. Um, The same thing that just happened to the ACC happened to the SEC a decade ago with all of its broadcasts moving to ESPN. All that being said, Jefferson Pilot uh, football games were notorious for starting super early, like in the central time time zone where I grew up, these were 1130 a.m. games. And somehow, I don't know how they managed this, but every Jefferson football pilot football game that was ever played featured both Kentucky and Vanderbilt. 
They played uh, 10 times a year at 11.30 in the morning on JP. Also, as an article from 2008 noted, Raycom slash Jefferson Pilot had a proclivity to only hire announcers with the first name Dave. There was Dave Neal, Dave Rowe, and don't forget the legendary Dave Baker. Um, But Ben, I'm curious for your thoughts on this, actually, because this feels like the final nail in a particular brand of college sports regionalism. Um, The fact that all of these games are available through ESPN, either streaming or on the SEC network or the ACC network. It represents a kind of consolidation of college sports that has been a long time coming. But there is just something that I think I'll miss, if not in the specifics of these games, but in the notion that there was just like a set of local games, local broadcasters that you would get on a local channel with local commercials. And that just like does not exist anymore in major conference college sports. I mean, I think that's actually uh, kind of a disservice to viewers in in some ways because you never, you know, like, I, I'm sure you've had this experience. Uh, you have a different national announcing team every week, and they kind of just make the same points about your team every week, you know, because they're introducing the team to themselves into the national audience, uh, and it can be kind of frustrating if you're, you know, a fan of one team. Uh, you kind of want to hear a little more um, in depth analysis. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, there is definitely something lost, not only in, for the nostalgia factor, but in, as far as the actual. Uh, you know, coverage of of the games when this is kind of thing is happening. Stefan is nodding. I'm nodding. I wasn't ignoring your afterball, Josh, but I was reading a little more about Varsity Blues. Okay, there was another really good 20th anniversary retrospective piece in Entertainment Weekly about the back film in January about the film. Yeah, um, I really want to watch it now. Yeah, because it sounds like it was very hokey and of its time, but it had some good football. <laughs> Stefan discovers Varsity Blues during afterball, and the John Voight character Bud Kilmer. The asshole coach at one point screams, you're dragging ass up there, son, and it's fucking up my universe. <laughs> That's at the kid that has a concussion, I think. It was kind of a, it was forward looking a lot of ways. Right. There's a kid that has a concussion and they get him a CAT scan and it turns out he doesn't have a concussion. So he was fine. <laughs> he, he made it through the protocol. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that movie the most famous for the shaving cream bikini though? You know, there are so many un- iconic moments in it. I don't think <laughs> could pick one, but uh, certainly that was uh, a big part of the marketing campaign, if I recall. And there's a character named Tweeter, which probably would have been a better name than Mox for the afterballs, but too late. Too late now. We can't. We can't turn back. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Thank you, Ben Mathis Lilly, for being the person who has seen Varsity Blues, which turned out to be more crucial than any of us could have anticipated. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you are still with us during the closing credit sequence of the Hang Up and Listen podcast program, uh, I am guessing that you are the perfect listener for the Hang Up and Listen bonus segment slate plus experience in our bonus segment this week uh stefan and ben and i are going to talk about the espn fame 100 the list of the most famous 100 athletes 
in the world, many of whom are cricket players. Uh, so if you want to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.